Praise be Jesus Christ, and peace be with you, all brothers and sisters in the Lord, friends of uh, In Your Embrace podcast. I hope that I am catching you by surprise by releasing this episode today. It's Friday, September 25th. It is an Ember Friday in the month of September, and uh, I have not updated this podcast in about two months, I think. Um... And uh, so I'm sorry about that if you are a longtime listener. Um, yeah, in the, in the interim time, since the last time I released an episode, I have begun, and I'm actually about two months into my pastoral year. Um, as, you will, as you will recall, the pastoral year in uh, seminary formation is the time when a seminarian goes into a parish for a whole year, or about a year, and uh, you live there, you're living with, with, the, with the pastor, with the local priest, uh, working in the parish, and basically, t- to the fullest extent that it's possible, just living the life uh, of a parish priest. And so, obviously, uh, what is not possible is to celebrate the sacraments, so you're not celebrating Mass or hearing confessions or anything like that. But uh, as a seminarian intern, if you will, pastoral year seminarian, you are taking part in everything that it is possible to take part in, <laughs> in, in, the, in the priestly life. Um, so I'll speak more about that in a little bit. But I've been here for about two months, as I said. I arrived on August 1st, and I guess I should say where I am. I'm at St. Mary's Parish in Eugene, Oregon. Eugene is, uh, I believe, our second largest city in the state of Oregon. The University of Oregon is here. Um, the, uh, the, the famous Matthew Knight Arena is here <laughs> on the campus of U of O, uh, which has been a great talking point. I've been making good use of that, introducing myself to people, <laughs> and it's gotten a lot of good comments, so that's working to my advantage as well. And uh, yeah, so I, one nice thing about being in Eugene is it's really not far from my hometown of Roseburg. It's, it's just about an hour uh, away on highway on uh, highway five i five so and th- this is this is a nice this is a nice size of a city I think to be in uh, it's not quite so so crazy as Portland um, but uh, it's a good sized place we St Mary's here we're the largest parish also in the city and the oldest parish it's a downtown parish um, quite a beautiful church really. Uh, there were some renovations done after the council, but the church has never been sort of recovated, as the as the saying goes, like like so many churches were after the Second Vatican Council in those intervening years. Um, so here at St. Mary's, our, our altar rail was taken out, and the high altar was just sort of picked up and moved over to one side. And one project for the year, actually, that the pastor is working on, and I'm happy to collaborate on, is moving that high altar back into the center, back into the apse of, of the sanctuary. So that's going to, oh, when, when that's done, basically, the church will be back as it was. The altar rail hopefully one day will follow, but pretty much it hasn't had, it hasn't had to suffer very much other, other, than that, other than that change. So the people here are very good. Um, there's a Hispanic community, which I've been uh, getting to know bit by bit. There are uh, young adults here. There's a young adult group that meets weekly. On Thursdays and um, so that's been very good and the community they've just been so welcoming they're very glad to have me uh, they've had seminarians a couple years there's actually one of our seminarians from Portland comes from here it's his home parish he was here over the summer and when I arrived in August he was still here for a couple of weeks 
So he was able to kind of show me the ropes, introduce me to the people, show me what he's been working on, and uh, he made my transition very smooth. So anyway, so it's all great. Uh, <laughs> it's been uh, it's been it's been a good couple of months so far. Um, yeah, the great the greatest blessing is is the love of the people and the support of the people. It's extremely edifying to see. Of course, uh, not being the pastor, you know, I'm kind of in a sweet spot because if the people are ever upset about something <laughs> or. Uh, you know, have have some have some issue to raise or something that, that they wish to uh, dispute. Well, the pastor handles all of that, you know, and I can wash my hands of it. <laughs> Whereas, uh, you know, so 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 with me, I'm receiving from them mostly, um, you know, their their just their love and their delight. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then and then really the battleground battleground of the heart is uh, just in loving the people as well as they deserve and so that's something I, I've been convicted of recently I have a friend who's also on pastoral year who was speaking to me about this not long ago but just uh, yeah part of part of part of what we're learning in this year there's a lot that, that we're that we're meant to learn from our time in the parish right so we're under the mentorship of our pastors we're learning from them how you know how to handle all kinds of situations um, some difficult cases we're learning them from them about like everything from the administrative policy to um, you know how to how to run meetings <laughs> how to handle the staff and, and staff disputes at times uh, how to uh, interact with the people how to how to conduct home visits you know how to uh, all, all, basically all, responding to all sorts of pastoral situations whatever comes up we learn from the pastor how he handles it. And that might be a positive example or a negative example, right? We might learn what not to do at times from our pastors. But it's all formation. It's all formative. But a big part of what we're meant to learn, I think, in this year is um, just to acquire more and more Christ's own heart for his people, his own heart which loves his people so dearly. Because that's the most important thing for a priest as a spiritual father is to just have that, to have that fatherly heart of love um, for Christ's church. And so I'm uh, finding that already. Sometimes that is, that's a, a battle. Um, and I, I mean that. Sometimes it is a battle because the enemy would like nothing more than to undermine the love of priests for the people. Um, I've seen what damage it can do to the hearts of the people when they are not well received by their priests by their clergy and uh, but uh, conversely you know how beautiful it is for the people to receive the love of their spiritual fathers how much that empowers and encourages them um, so yeah this is this is it's a battle because the enemy of our human nature the enemy of our salvation uh, wants nothing more than to undermine the priesthood uh, by doing so he can wreak great havoc in the church and uh, cause many souls to be lost. So the saying goes that the, the enemy reserves, you know, the greater part of his, of his hatred and of his, uh, of his uh, activity to attack priests and seminarians because by doing so, he can undermine many more souls than if you went after them individually, and after all of them individually. Anyway, so that's sort of a, that's not really what I meant to talk about, but somehow we ended up there. <laughs> I'm driving right now, by the way. I'm on my way to visit a family who I love very dearly. They live about an hour further north from Eugene in the town of Corvallis. So I'm heading up there. We're going to have dinner together tonight. And, um, but I, I've been intending for a while to restart this podcast. I've gotten some comments from people who miss it. Were wondering what's happened to me <laughs> and uh, so I thought and I, and I had already committed to to do so today of course my day filled up as has been the case pretty much every day recently it just it's just every moment is full it's difficult to carve out time for something like this but I, I do want to restart it and I want to be faithful to it um, so I figured today would be as good a day as any uh, you know, the only time I could really make is while driving, but I might as well do it. I might as well 
I might as well do it now. You know, if no other time presents itself, this is the time that I'll record it. So anyway, so it might be a bit hit or miss in the weeks to come, but I'm, I'm really going to do my very best to record this for you again on Fridays as the year goes forward to share with you the experiences I'm having on pastoral year and to share with you again about Shakespeare and theology and whatever other special topics come to mind because I've been missing I've, I've been missing it too um, on the topic of Shakespeare I have not done any reading at all until this week I'm about eight plays behind so I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to catch up and finish this year's you know Shakespeare 2020 project or not I'm going to do my best um, but uh, you know there, there's a glimmer of hope it's it's not it's not tremendous um, because that's a lot of reading to have to catch up on. But this week, I did make the time to read Measure for Measure, a play which I saw once in a production, I think when I was in high school at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland. I remembered very little of it. I remembered kind of just the broad, broadest strokes of the plot. And I very much enjoyed going back to it again. So I will share with you some thoughts about Measure for Measure in a second. Um, before that, um, I guess I'll share with you just a little bit more about what I'm doing on the pastoral year and what that's kind of looked like so far. So basically, I have been... Uh, so I have, I have a number of projects I'm working on, right? And I've been here two months. I'm kind of getting some things of my own going, which is... It's kind of an exciting place to be right now. Um, one thing is I'm doing Eucharistic catechesis videos once a week. This came out of a desire that the pastor and I were talking about to just just do some more kind of formation work. And especially this is really the desire. The desire is to get people back to Mass, right? We're live streaming our Masses. We're open. Uh, we, we, have, we can have up to 100 people in the churches at the moment. And uh, the reality is, other than one Mass, the earliest Mass on Sundays at 9 a.m., that's the only Mass that's ever booked to capacity. It's that, that Mass is regularly full, and we have overflow in the parish hall. So if there's others you know, beyond 100 who come, um, they will go and watch the live-streamed Mass in the parish hall on a big TV, which is not a, an ideal option. So <laughs> people don't really like that option. I can see why. I've been over there a couple of times and it's it's not great you honestly i mean the, the the tv cuts out and you other than the fact that you can receive communion which you know I, I will i bring communion to the people who are in the hall but other than that which is not not a negligible benefit <laughs> i'll be the first to admit but you'd have a better experience watching the mass at home on your tv or something probably than coming and dealing with our technical difficulties so that has not been popular. So there's usually a handful who come who are in the hall, but and then the, and then the 9 a.m. mass and the church is full to 100. But all our other masses on Sundays and throughout the week uh, have well below capacity. I mean, maybe 50 people, um, you know. So uh, so we're we're trying to get people to come back, and that's part of the reason I'm doing these Eucharistic catechesis. They're short videos, so about two to four minutes. And they're being posted on Sundays on our parish Facebook page and on our website. And uh, I'm putting them up in the comments on the live stream masses. You know, it's kind of like like the first comment you would see if you go on to watch the mass. So the idea is maybe if you log on to see the mass, you log on a few minutes early, you could watch the video or you could watch it after. And just the hope is that these these videos will kind of stir a fire in people's hearts to want to come back and receive the Eucharist. If maybe they're staying at home and they're kind of on the fence, you know, they're, they're watching the live stream masses, maybe they've gotten kind of comfortable in that routine, um, or, you know, they, they might be willing to come back to church, to the mass, but uh, who knows? So some people are, um, you know, they're uh, a little bit, um, they don't want to deal with the hassle of having to sign up for a place maybe through our online sign-up system or whatever it may be. The hope is that this might just nudge some people, you know, <laughs> past whatever might be holding them back to, to just take take the step and come back 
to the Mass and receive the sacrament. So I'm speaking a lot about the beauty of the Eucharist, how the Lord meets us there, how He gives us strength to live our Christian life, how everything in our Christian life proceeds from the Eucharist and is supposed to lead back to the Eucharist. And what I'm doing is I'm just following the Catechism. So the Catechism of 1980 or 1990-something promulgated by John Paul II um, speaks so beautifully about the Eucharist, drawing on the Church Fathers and, and everything. So I'm just going paragraph by paragraph, and every I'm not just reading the text. In fact, I don't read the text, uh, but I read it ahead of time for myself and then reflect on it. And then in the video, I just kind of give an extemporaneous reflection based on that paragraph of the Catechism. And uh, I usually put a little, you know, a little text side, a little, um, not a sidebar, but a, I don't know, bottom, bottom bar that pops up over the video with the actual text of that paragraph so people can see it if they wish but they just kind of hear a little fervorino from me um, about that topic related to the Eucharist so it's progressive each week it goes through the catechism and basically I could continue this all year and I, I think not run out of catechism texts <laughs> so I could just keep going you know as long as the pastor and I discern that it's it's helpful if I, if I was to run out of paragraphs from the Catechism, I could always, I don't know, start talking about Thomas Aquinas or something. <laughs> but um, it's been very good. It's also good for me because the seminary would like me to have some experience, um, you know, teaching and giving reflections, public speaking and that type of thing. I mean, not just me individually, but it's part of our pastoral year program. But of course, we can't preach. We're not, I'm not a deacon yet. We're not deacons. So... This is something that the, the seminarians in Rome, I think, do a bit better than we do. In Rome, you go on your pastoral year as a deacon, and you spend a full year in the parish as a deacon before you go back to do your final year of studies. I think there's a certain logic to that, because as a deacon, there's much more you can do. You can preach, you can baptize, you can celebrate marriages and funerals, you can give blessings. So there's, there's really much more you can do as a deacon than I can do now. I'm still a layman. Um, even though I'm here as a seminarian. So um, anyway, so, so I can't preach in the masses, but Father Ryan and I have brainstormed several ways for me to, you know, opportunities for me to teach and give reflections. We've had some parish weekday prayer services when we couldn't have a daily mass, and I've gotten to preach at those. And then um, also these online videos are, are, are a way of kind of meeting that expectation from the seminarian putting me to use, uh, <laughs> giving the people some reflections. So it's been good. I've gotten some good feedback. I'm doing them in English and Spanish each week. So it's been especially, especially the feedback from the Hispanic community has been great. Some, I think uh, the Spanish videos have been viewed this last week more than the English video. So that's good. That's encouraging to see because our Spanish mass is really the mass with the lowest attendance of all got like 20 or 30 people at a Spanish Mass on Sunday. And so it's very, very low. We want to get those people back to Mass um, as, as soon as we can. So hopefully this will bear fruit in that regard. I'm also right now doing some videos for a nine-day novena to St. Therese. I got this idea from Father Eric, um, a, uh, a priest who I was assigned with one summer at St. Stephen's in Portland. He's been a great mentor to me. And I've noticed all this year he's been doing Novena videos. And he mentioned to me the other day when I went to visit him, he was telling me this is a way to uh, keep in touch with the families in his parish. You know, people watch it together with their kids at home or whatnot. And each one is getting, you know, several hundred views. I mean, a lot of people are joining these Novenas, but it's just really a way to keep in touch with the parish, people who might not be coming to Mass, and, and to unite with them in prayer. So I was inspired by it, so I wanted to pray a novena to St. Therese anyway for these nine days between uh, St. Matthew's Day, September 21st, and her feast day, October 1st. So I thought, well, I'll make some videos and I'll give a little reflection each day on some of St. Therese's last words that were recorded uh, by Mother Agnes of Jesus. So give a little reflection and then pray her chaplet and, uh, and, and offer the novena prayers. So I've just been making those little videos too the last few days and they've gotten a great response. And um, so that's something else I'm, I'm pleased to be able to offer. In addition to that, um, one thing I've been doing a lot of is outreach in terms of visiting the sick and the homebound. 
Um, there's one lady I visit every week on Fridays. Her name is Norma. She's 94 years old. She lives near the parish. Used to walk to daily mass every day till this year. And uh, so I go right now once a week and I take her Holy Communion and been visiting with her. I went today. And for me, it's been extremely life-giving. She, uh, she's uh, just a beautiful soul. Um, so just to have conversation with her and each week to often at times after I give her communion we'll have coffee and we'll just hear a bit about her family sometimes we'll pray for her family members who she desires prayer for or we'll just talk about her history she's an artist she loves Cezanne she's a painter of landscapes she uh, she's just a very interesting woman and a, a faithful woman and so um, that's that's been a wonderful part of my routine each week I also was going to visit a, a, a nursing home in the area but they recently had a COVID outbreak, so I'm not able to go there for a while. But we have four parishioners there who were very pleased to have me bring them Holy Communion. So I'm hoping to get back there as soon as I can. And there are, there are other nursing homes too in our parish, but they've been, they've been locked down. I don't know if they've had outbreaks or what, but they, they haven't wanted us to come visit just yet. So in the months to come, hopefully, I'll be doing more of that sort of ministry. It's very, of course, very needed, very valuable. The people who are not able to come to church, as you can imagine, are so appreciative to receive the sacraments, to receive a visit from, a, from, a, from the church. <laughs> Even if it's just me, I'm not a priest, but they're, they're very pleased to have me come. Um, and uh, for me, all those visits have been so life-giving. And oftentimes it's been my experience already that sometimes I'll go and maybe... Um, I won't feel like I have very much to offer, you know, personally. Maybe, I, maybe I'm a bit tired, it's the end of the day, or whatever it may be. I just, I just sort of feel that spiritual poverty. But I just go in faith, bringing the Blessed Sacrament to, to the people, to facilitate this meeting of Christ with His people, you know? Just, I'm, just the, uh, I'm just the donkey that's bearing Christ into Jerusalem <laughs> to meet to His faithful people waiting for Him, you know? And, and I've just been floored every time by what I have received from these encounters, truly. It's been each time for me, um, you know, really, I've been renewed, I've been encouraged, and uh, sometimes they want to give me little gifts or, you know, they'll give me, like this lady Norma, she'll often give me a flower, uh, a rose to bring back and place before the image of Our Lady at the church. She can't go anymore, but I imagine she used to do this. And now she'll give me this rose to bring and, and, and lay at the feet of Mary, things like that. Or she's, she also has made me some little drawings. She, she's right now interested in cubism. Um, and so she's made me some little, some little drawings in the cubist style for me to take, which is not really to my taste, but I, I appreciate them a lot, these, these little gifts. So... That's, uh, that's been a great lesson for me already, is just how the Lord rewards um, His servants when we go in, in, you know, in our poverty, in our humility, having nothing to offer but Christ Himself. We just go and bring the Lord, and very often we receive and we leave, I leave these encounters feeling much richer than when I arrived. So that's something I've really loved. I've gone on some sick calls also with the pastor, Father Ron. And those are always, um, those are always also privileged moments. So we went on one to uh, do a house blessing. We went to visit a couple who uh, wished to have their home exercised a couple of weeks ago, who felt that they were being targeted by some demonic activity. I learned a lot from that encounter, <laughs> definitely, and uh, various things like that. Visiting, visiting the dying, um, things of that nature. So that's something I've been doing a lot of. Um, also, I'm working on, and this is kind of a long-term project, I have not made much progress on it so far, but working on coming up with a, a, a database or a spreadsheet um, of, of our, our parishioners who are homebound, just all of them, so we can start making more just outreach calls and just calling them as a parish. Hopefully we can get the parish staff and kind of just share this burden amongst ourselves. But just to call our parishioners who are home, check in with them, See, are they coming to Mass? If not, um, what can we do to help support you during this time? Um, 
which brings me to uh, another crisis we passed through recently as a community. Not only COVID, but also we had wildfires and still have wildfires. The last couple weeks, the smoke was incredibly thick. The city was laboring under a dark cloud. Really, the state, I think, Western Oregon, was under uh, cloud. Some of our parishioners were evacuated. We know of one woman who lost her home. She's living with family now. But Father Ron and I were out there several times just visiting the evacuees, the refugees. and So that was kind of a, a good lesson, too, of just, you know, what, what you do in a time of crisis. What do you do? Um, what we did was we went out and we're just among the people, you know. And it was, for me, a great experience of also this spiritual poverty, just feeling my inadequacy. There wasn't a lot that we could do to really concretely help these people. But, but Father Ron is such a good example Um of just going out there to be in their midst, to speak with them, to pray with them, and just to be a sign of hope, a sign of the presence of the church, the presence of God in a time of great calamity and crisis. These people who we saw, they were all um, staying at a public high school in, in Springfield, the neighboring city, um, while they were kind of waiting for the Red, Hot, Red, Red Cross to organize temporary housing. And when we went to visit them, you could just see these people are deeply traumatized. Um, and so we, there were, those were some difficult conversations. But uh, um, in the midst of it all, um, by the Lord's grace, I was able to just offer some bold prayers and just listen to some people who were hurting. And I think that was, uh, that was an occasion of probably of some healing. And I hope and of just an, an encounter with our good Lord. So that's, uh, that's ongoing. The fires are more controlled now, but it's just going to be a long work of rebuilding and of getting people settled again. Um, of course, there's lots of liturgical work. We are blessed to be busy right now as a parish. I know one of my other brothers who's on pastoral year was mentioning to me the other day, he's, <laughs> things have been slow for him. And I, I laughed. I said... Well, it, my pastoral year has been many things already, but it has not been slow, let me tell you. We've got uh, four masses on the weekend right now, which is down from the old schedule of six pre-COVID. But four is still a respectable number. Actually, I think there's five. There's four Sunday. No, 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 sorry. There's four Sunday, and we're going to reintroduce the Saturday night vigil soon uh, at uh, 5.30 p.m. Saturday nights. We've got uh, at least one, if not two masses a day during the week. Usually on Saturdays, there's a baptism. We've had some weddings on Saturdays. We've had funerals. We had a funeral a couple days ago. Um, actually, yesterday, this week, big funeral. And then um, in addition to that, uh, we've got some classes starting. We had RCIA start last week. So I helped out with that, which was a wonderful experience. Um, in the weeks to come, I will be probably teaching some classes. And then uh, also, once things get rolling probably about December uh, for the catechumenate the RCIA so the, the, the catechumens typically will attend Sunday Mass until the creed and then they leave so they're, they're not present for the Mass of the faithful they will go off on their own to the parish hall and then I will be going to probably give them some talks or some reflections during that period of catechumenate on Sunday mornings. We've got our religious education classes starting. I'll probably be helping with that. Those will be mostly online, but I'll, I'll be uh, helping out with that in some capacity. And our parish school has just reopened. And so Father wants me to get over there and uh, make some visits. We've got grades one, th uh, kindergarten through three are present in the school. Four through eight are online. So I'm hoping to go over and visit those younger grades and uh, probably at some point also do some Zoom classes, you know, theology classes for the upper grades. So that is a taste of what I've been doing and of some coming attractions <laughs> in the parish. It is, uh, it's a beautiful life. And of course, I should just mention also just getting to know the people. Um, there's a group that goes out for coffee, sometimes after the morning masses. I've joined them a few times and that's been good. There's a, a men's book club. I'm, I've well, I missed it but uh, this, this past week, but I'm hoping to join in with that uh, at their next meeting. And uh, 
just a variety of things like that. There's the young adults have been happy to help out with once a week. We're trying to get kind of a young men's discipleship group up and running. Because there's, I've noticed there's, there's quite a, there's a good group of about six to eight young guys around my age in the parish who are not coming to the young adults. So I'm like, okay, I want to get these guys, you know, into a group. I want to get something up and running where we can start doing some more, you know, formation and discipleship stuff and just uh, have some small group sharing and some prayer together and support each other. Um, Because that's really the heart of our Christian life is, um, oh, I mean, of course, the the heart of our Christian life is the sacraments where the Lord meets us. But going out from that, flowing out from that, how are we going to live our Christian life day to day? We need to have uh, a group, a community where we can really be known and know each other and support each other um, in the just the daily struggles of growing in virtue and and uh, being good disciples. So that's something I'm trying to, to grow as well. I'm excited about that. I've got some interest in it. So hopefully this next month we'll get it going. Um, and maybe also a, a Spanish language Bible study. That's something we're thinking about. Or, well, it could take various forms. It could be a Bible study. It could be a class. I don't know what it will be, but that's also something on the radar. So as you can tell, there's a lot going on in the parish of St. Mary's Eugene, and I'm loving every minute of it. It's great. I feel so far just extremely confirmed in my vocation, and I'm giving thanks to God for that. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful life. It's a... It's a, it's a it's just, I, I, there's, no, there's no other way I'd rather live. Um, everything I'm seeing here is, yes, th- there are difficulties, there are struggles, but this is, uh, what else can I say? It's a beautiful life, and uh, for those who are called to it, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing that can surpass the joy um, and the beauty of this life. So I give thanks to the Lord for bringing me thus far, and I pray He will bring me on to the day of my ordination. Um, maintaining and, and, and increasing this zeal to serve him in the parishes and increasing in me um, yeah just this 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 fire of love to serve his people as best as I can so please pray for me throughout this year and uh, keep praying for our good people here at St. Mary's and all those whom the Lord is placing me here to serve now I've got about half an hour left in my drive so why don't we just check in a little bit with uh, Sir William Shakespeare and talk about this week's play Measure for measure. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. Measure for measure is, in many respects, uh, a difficult play. Um, <laughs> and it's, I have to say, it's, it's one that I really like. I don't know, it's probably in my top 10, I would say, of the, of the plays we've read so far. Not, it doesn't make the top five, I'll tell you that, but it's in the top 10. And so basically, here's the premise. There is a duke, the Duke of Vienna. And in Vienna, the situation in the city is that um, the, people, the people have been given free reign for a long time to kind of just do as their hearts desire (laughs) and indulge their various appetites and to break the law sort of to sort of thumb their nose at the law the law is not being enforced so it's not being respected the duke notices this state of affairs and he decides that the best way to sort of rectify the situation will be for him to go away for a while and uh, to a point in his place this man whose name is Angelo. And Angelo has been, I forget what his role is, but he has, he's some kind of a counselor or he's some kind of a public official in Vienna. And um, he has a reputation for being a, a very austere and stern and strict man who is sort of punctilious about following the law. And so he has this public reputation, right? One character in the play at some point says that when he makes water, he passes ice. <laughs> the ice runs in his veins, you know? He's sort of this kind of a guy. And so the Duke uh, summons Angelo and another character whose name I forget now. The other character is kind of a, a, a gentle, kindly old man who is um, more humane. And the Duke appoints them both to, to govern the city in his absence. His, his absence. He says he's going away for a time. He won't tell them where he's going, but they're going to be in charge. And in particular, he tells them that 
he gives them he gives them his full authority, right? So if they want to um, enforce the laws, they're free to do it. If they wish to change the laws, they have the power to do it. So as long as he's away, they have charge over the city and its people. And uh, what ends up happening is that this the other guy who's appointed is sort of a, a figurehead. He doesn't really seem to have much authority to rein in Angelo. Angelo um, takes to this newfound office with gusto and uh, he immediately sets about enforcing all of the laws on the books in the city with great strictness and great alacrity. And of course, this is what the Duke expected when he appointed Angelo to this position. But the Duke does not actually go away. He goes to his friend, a friar, I think Friar Peter Thomas, who's some kind of a religious, you know, a Franciscan or something. And he, he asks him, Father, uh, clothe me in the habit of your order and teach me how to comport myself as a religious, as a friar myself, so that I can go unseen amongst people and I can really get a feel for how things are going and what the public opinion is. So he, he, has, he doesn't leave. The Duke is still there and he's watching what Angelo is doing and how the people are responding. So that's a very interesting thing right off the bat. This Duke is, uh, is very psychologically astute and um, he's sort of an ambiguous character. We'll see more about that in a second. But you can see he, he doesn't actually leave his kingdom. He puts Angelo in this role. Well, I don't know. You, you could sort of draw your own conclusions about what his, his motivation is. Maybe you could say he doesn't want to be the bad guy who's going to start enforcing the rules all of a sudden. Maybe he just thinks that that won't be well received by the people. Um, he's kind of let things go for so long that he thinks they won't really take him seriously. I don't know what exactly it is. Personally, though, I think this, this is just something about his character that he, he is kind of a, a man of twists and turns, right? Like Homer says about Odysseus or, or Ulysses. He's kind of a man of twists and turns. He likes to sort of see how people will act and react. And so this is a golden opportunity for him. Put someone else in charge, start enforcing the law, and then see what the people will do. So he's kind of a, I don't know, a sociologist, <laughs> if you want. He's a, he's a student of human nature, he wants to see what makes people tick and what will happen to them. So he goes out amongst the people with this kind of, 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 uh, of attitude. He's disguised as a religious man, a friar. And um, Angelo's enforcing the law. And of course, Angelo immediately uh, has to find a scapegoat someone who will break some minor law and who will then face the full brunt of the law's punishment to show the rest of the town that he means business, right? And so therein is the case of, a, of, a, of this um, poor man whose name I am unfortunately now forgetting. I want to say it's Lucio, but I know that's a different character. Uh, what is this man's name? Hold on, I think it'll come to me. His, his sister is Isabella. I'll speak about his sister first. He has a, a virtuous sister named Isabella who is entering a convent. And uh, Isabella is a kind of a woman who, when she's entering the convent and speaking with the novice mistress, she, uh, she's wondering why the rule for the sisters is not stricter than it is. So she's very virtuous, she's very devout. She wants to give herself over to a religious life. And uh, she, she in particular is sort of, she's sort of a counterpart to Angelo or the way that Angelo portrays himself publicly. Isabella is a woman who is, uh, is truly virtuous, but she's, she's very rigorous with herself. And she, um, yeah, she, she's, she's, seeking, she's seeking for the heights of virtue, really, and to give herself to the Lord to the greatest extent possible. And then her dear brother, um, Claudio, <laughs> Cla Isabella and Claudio. Her dear brother Claudio is also a good man, but he is not so rigorous and he is more tempted by passion. So he, uh, he, make, he falls into a moral lapse with this woman who he's betrothed to. They're intended to marry, but um, before they, they've, they've um, before they've married, you know, civilly and, and, and in the eyes of the church, they uh, know one another and 
the, the woman is with child. And so this becomes publicly known. And uh, this is a crime. And so Angelo is going to punish Claudio with the death penalty, which is the punishment prescribed under the law for this act, this adulterous act. It's not enough that they're betrothed and they're going to be married. Angelo is going to punish him to the fullest extent of the law. Now, here's the drama of the play. Um, Isabella goes to Angelo in order to plead for her brother's life. And when she goes to him, Angelo finds that he is now moved with a deep desire for her. He whose heart is like ice, who's never been moved before by any human passion, apparently, right? Um, or at least so, so people think. But when he sees Isabella, his heart is moved, he desires her, and he ends up making her this, um, this uh, despicable offer, really, that if she will surrender to him her chastity, if she uh, will, will give herself over to him in adultery, then he will spare her brother's life. And so Isabella, of course, protests. She, she will have nothing to do with this. She says, what a world of difference there lies between um, an act of clemency by which he would spare her brother's life and this uh, sort of, you know, uh, adulterous exchange. Angelo really uh, committing the very same act for which he is willing to so harshly punish her brother Claudio. She threatens to make this known, his offer known to the public, but he protests that, and, and rightly so, that no one will believe her. And she realizes this is the case. And so she leaves his presence quite downcast. But then, ah, she goes and meets the Duke in his disguise as a humble friar. And he hatches this plot. It's sort of like Romeo and Juliet, where Friar Lawrence hatches this plot, which in Romeo and Juliet ends in tragedy. In this play, though, it has a better ending. So he says, well, why don't you go and agree with him, you know, make plans with him to meet him tonight in his chambers. But instead of you going, we will send to him this other woman who is actually betrothed to Angelo, but um, he in the past sort of forsook her. He laid her aside. And so now she's living on her own, heartbroken, uh, with no means of support, no dowry. Let's send her to go and uh, meet Angelo in your place, you know, and we'll do it under cover of night in the darkness and so on. And that's what they do. And so they, they, they arrange this plot and the idea is that, that Angelo will then um, offer a stay on Claudio's execution. So he'll have mercy on Claudio as he's promised to do. And then they will reveal to him that in fact the woman who he knew by night was actually his own betrothed, whose name I, I don't remember now. I'm having trouble with names in this play. <laughs> but uh, I, think it's, I think it's Mauricia or something like that, or Marissa. Anyway, but then they'll reveal to him that it was really Marissa or Mauricia who he, he knew by night, and then they will have to be married. So it's sort of, sort of um, setting two injustices to right with a single act. Well, that's the plan, and then things get more complicated, and I won't get into all the details. At the end of the play, the Duke reveals himself for who he truly is, and he sort of sets everything right. And um, he, he, he judges Angelo harshly, but, but also with mercy. So he decrees that Angelo must marry this woman, his betrothed, and then he sends for him to be uh, hanged. But Angelo begs for mercy, and, and the Duke grants it to him. And ultimately, everything else is set to right as well. Claudio's life is spared. And um, it, it's implied at the end of the play that Isabella and the Duke are also going to go and be married. So Isabella is not ultimately going to enter her religious order. She's, her heart is sort of softened as well. And she is no longer going to just seek for great rigor, but she's going to go and marry the good Duke. And they will live together as husband and wife. So it's an interesting play. <laughs> Very interesting indeed. One of the great themes of this play is the corruption of power and how power reveals what a man... It, well, this is the question. Does power reveal what a man's character truly is? Or does power corrupt a man's character in kind of an, an absolute and an irresistible way? It seems to me 
that power reveals the truth about a man's character. Because here's the little detail in the plot that one could easily miss, but I think it's very revealing. The Duke, when he, he installed Angelo to this position, he already knew that Angelo previously had been betrothed to this woman, I think Mauricia, let's just, because I forget her name, let's just call her Mauricia. <laughs> so he had been betrothed to her, but then this woman, her, I think, father had been in a shipwreck and uh, her dowry was completely lost. So basically, she was worthless. She no longer was going to bring anything to the marriage. She didn't have any... She, didn't, she, wasn't gonna, she wasn't going to enrich Angelo by marrying her. And it was at that point that he cast her aside. And he really, he cast grave aspersions on her character. He let it be known publicly that there was a rumor that she had been unfaithful and that she had been adulterous. So he broke off the engagement and cast her aside like so much rubbish. And the Duke, the Duke knew about all of this. So he knew that Angelo's reputation as kind of a, a man of ice and a, a, you know, a man of impeccable virtue was not all that it seemed. So let us consider maybe, did the Duke install Angelo in this position, not just because he wanted to see you know, how the people would react to having the laws enforced more strictly, but he wanted to see what kind of a man Angelo was. He wanted to see how Angelo would handle um, all the, the, the sort of unlimited power that comes with the dukedom. And perhaps the Duke was not at all surprised to learn from poor Isabella the proposition that the Duke, that, 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 that Angelo had made to her. So the Duke is kind of this, this figure who's, um, he's, he's testing people throughout the whole play. Now there is a part of this that, that strikes us as cold and sort of unfeeling and even sort of, um, you know, grounds for reproach, which is that at a certain point in the play, he knows that Claudio is alive, but he lets Isabella believe that her, her dear brother has already been executed. This is kind of the dark side of his character, right? He's so interested in how people will react and testing their character and testing their mettle, seeing what they'll do in this situation or that. So he allows her to believe her brother was killed just to see how will Isabella react? How will her virtue last in this situation? What will she do? And that's kind of, that, that strikes me and I think it will strike most of us as sort of uh, beyond the pale. You know, that's, it's too cold. But, um, that's the character of the Duke. And in the end of the play, he, when he reveals himself, he does set everything to right. He does sort of resolve all the conflicts, all the tensions. Everyone gets justice. But not only, not, not just the strict justice of the law, everyone also, everyone also receives mercy. So the Duke ends up as kind of a character uh, who is, um, he's, a, he's a true noble man, if you want. He's truly a good ruler. And he gives the people, this is it, he gives the people not just what they deserve under the law, he gives them what they need. And that's, that's, that's one good definition, I think, of mercy. Justice tempered with mercy. Mercy married with justice. You don't just get the cold, you know, results of kind of a, a legal calculus. You don't just get the full burden of the law uh, bearing down on you. But you also get, you get a, you get a judge who truly... Um, loves his people and who truly knows what it is to strive to, to, to live up to the law and he has mercy upon them. So he even has mercy upon Angelo. And Isabella in the end prays, prays for Angelo. She kneels before the Duke and begs him to have mercy on him. And it's when she begs for that that Angelo his, his sentence is, is diminished. He's not going to be hanged. He's only made to marry his betrothed Mauricia and to live with her. Um, as, a, as her husband. So it's an interesting play. I think there's really a theological key that you could sort of transpose this play into. If you see the, the Duke, he, he's an imperfect analogy, but if you see the Duke as an image of God the Father, and, and how, it's interesting, but um, again, it's, 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 it's an imperfect analogy, but you could say, well, God comes down in our midst as Jesus. His divinity is veiled, if you want. We, we don't see him in all his power and all his glory. We see him moving among us. And then at the end of time, 
at the second coming, he will be revealed in glory, much like the Duke, you know, took off his hood uh, of his Franciscan habit and everyone finally sees him for who he is. And then he goes up and judges everyone according to their merits and gives them what's their due. So will Jesus at the end of time reveal himself in glory as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and everyone will receive from him their due. Everyone will receive from justice uh, and also mercy according to what is, well, what's, what's really due to each one of us. The Lord knows better than we do, and he, he will give us um, what we deserve. And he's, he's, a, he's a good judge. He's a merciful judge. He is, he is just. He can never be outdone in justice, but he can also never be outdone in mercy. And so we have confidence and hope in this, this greatest of all judges. Um, and it's, it's important to recognize also that Isabella, Isabella, this woman of true virtue, at the end she prays for Angelo. And so the power that our prayers have for men who are, you know, we, we may see them as evil, we may see them as um, corrupt and depraved, and indeed Angelo, um, Angelo fell in a, a grave way by proposing to Isabella, you know, by, by placing this burden, this pressure upon her to commit an act of grave sin with him to save her brother's life. He abused his authority. He, he placed himself over her in a position of power, which is inexcusable. But we can look at these kinds of men sometimes and see them as just despicable and worse than, them, worse than the devil himself. And Isabella sets for us really the example of the saints, what it is to pray for them. She forgives him from the heart. She prays for him. And because of her prayer, the judge has mercy on Angelo. And so this shows us the power of our prayers to move the heart of God, if you want, to move him to have mercy. The Lord desires to have mercy on all, but he desires to have mercy sometimes precisely through the means of our prayers. He desires for us to pray for mercy for others, for to pray for their forgiveness so that he might grant it. So this is good to remember sometimes, um, especially with those who we see in public life who have committed grave evils. And uh, the temptation of our day is to vilify them. Uh, you know, this is kind of our cancel culture, right? If someone is, uh, is shown to have some moral failure, we want to cancel them. We want to drive them out of the public square. We want to have a witch hunt. We want to tar and feather them. But our Christian response ought to be, and this ought to convict all of us. This, this convicts me too. Our Christian response ought to be to pray for these people, to pray for their repentance and their conversion, to pray for the Lord to have mercy on them and to receive their soul so that they might be spared from eternal damnation and delivered into, in, uh, delivered into glory. It might be a long period of purgatory for some, but for them to ultimately be reconciled to God. He desires the salvation of all. So it's up to us to pray for that. And we must keep that in mind always, that the Lord desires the salvation of everyone, of each one of us. Whatever we may have done, He doesn't give up on us. So let's not give up either on, on, on anyone. All right, so those are my little thoughts on Measure for Measure. And uh, I don't know what the play for next week is, but I'm going to try, okay? I'm really going to try to keep up with this um, e each week, to keep up with the Shakespeare, I mean, from now on. So you guys can hold me to that. And uh, as I keep up also trying to do the weekly podcasts, that'll hopefully be an incentive for me to keep reading the plays and uh, maybe to even try to catch up on the ones that I've missed. Who knows? Now, I've still got about 10 minutes before I get to this house for dinner. So let me just give you guys a really quick theology segment on the theology of fasting and the days which are known as ember days, which we are observing right now as a church. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ world is charged with the grandeur of God. So uh, in the tradition, the, the Catholic tradition, um, four times throughout the year, we observe these days which are known as Ember Days. The etymology of Ember Days is a bit uncertain. And I, I can't really tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, can't really tell you with certainty where that name comes from. But I can tell you a little bit about the symbolism and the theology behind these days. Um, they recur four times a year about the changing of the seasons. So right now, this week, we're in the September Ember Days. There's always three Ember Days that fall in September as we change from summer to autumn. 
We'll get them again uh, during Advent at the uh, turning of the season into winter around the winter solstice. We get another set of ember days um, in Lent, as winter, usually in Lent, as winter turns to spring. And then we get some again uh, as spring turns to summer. And that usually falls in, let's see, I guess around around, uh, June or something like that, or, or in May. Um, and so you get these ember days at the turning of the season. Now, there, there's three ember days each time. There's an ember Wednesday, ember Friday, and ember Saturday. And the reason for that is that during the ember days, basically, you fast for two reasons. You fast on these three days to make reparation for your failures during the season that is now past, um, but also to thank the Lord for the gift of that, of that season, which has gone by, and then to consecrate the new season, which is to come to the Lord. So a season lasts about three months. So you could say right now that during our September Ember Days, we are fasting to make reparation for the three months that have gone by of July, August, and September, and also to consecrate the three months to come, October, November, and December. So depending on how you want to look at it, we could say on Ember Wednesday, this past Wednesday, that we were fasting and making reparation for our failures in the month of uh, uh, the month of um, July, or yeah, the month of July. Sorry, I had to think about that for a sec. So we're we're fasting for the month of July. Think about what happened in July. For me, I was on a thirty-day retreat. So I on Wednesday, I was thinking back to my retreat in July and thinking about the resolutions I made then, and some of them I failed to keep, some of them I have kept. So giving thanks to God for those graces and blessings and asking his pardon for the ways that I failed. And then today, Ember Friday, doing the same thing with, uh, with uh, August. And then tomorrow, Saturday, I'll be doing the same with uh, September, this month that is now drawing to a close. You could also look at it as consecrating uh, the months to come. So one day, consecrating October, then November, then December, looking forward to what is about to, uh, to come in those months. Of course, there's much we don't know. But there's also much to pray for. We have the election coming up in, in November. Um, we have also Advent around the corner. So uh, we, want, we want to pray that there's no second wave of COVID and that these restrictions will loosen as soon as they can. So we always have much to pray for. We have much to repent of. We have much to give thanks for and much to ask the Lord for in the months to come. So these ember days are, I think, a beautiful, beautiful and important Catholic tradition four times a year to... Uh, have this time of, of, of repentance and also to consecrate the coming season to God. The Ember Days are no longer mandatory. They're not on the church's official calendar, but they are a traditional Catholic practice. Anywhere that the traditional Latin Mass is celebrated, the Ember Days are observed. And um, I just encourage all of you, if you're listening to this podcast, whether or not you're going to the traditional Mass, um, just to, to consider observing these Ember Days, these three days, and just, just try it out. Um, and uh, see what it does for your spiritual life and how maybe it changes the way that you live in the season that is uh, coming upon us now, this new season of, of autumn. The way to keep the Ember Days, by the way, I mentioned this in my, one of my Novena videos to St. Therese, but I'll mention it for you now in case you didn't hear that. So the way to keep it is um, on Wednesday and Saturday of the Ember Days, <clears throat> you have partial abstinence. On Ember Friday, you have full abstinence. So on each of these days, you want to have one main meal, and the best, the best time to do it is to have it about midday. If you can push it back to one or two o'clock, all the better, because that's going to kind of be your, your, your source of energy for the day. <laughs> and then you, you can take a little food in the morning, and then you have your main meal around one or two if you can, and then you can have a little bit more food in the evening before bed. But that should just be enough to carry you throughout the day. On Ember Wednesday and Saturday, you can have meat at your main meal. So that's why it's partial abstinence. For your little, your little collation in the morning or the evening, it ought to just be something small like a little bread or fruit or a little yogurt or something or you know a little cheese, whatever. But you can have meat at the main meal. But then on Ember Friday, which is today, Ember Friday, you want to have full abstinence and avoid meat also at the main meal. So just have a little... Just have, you know, something, you could have soup or a salad or something, or fish, you could have fish, you can discern. But the idea is um, 
to avoid meat the, the whole day on, on Ember Friday. So that's your little catechesis on the Ember Days, what they're for, what they mean, and how to keep them. If you missed these ones, no worries. You could still keep Ember Saturday if you're listening to this in time. But if not, just consider doing this uh, at the, the next set of Ember Days, which will fall during Advent as we move into the season of winter. I'll try to give you a reminder again uh, around that time. So just one of the many beautiful Catholic practices in kind of our, our, our arsenal, if you want, or our treasury of wonderful Catholic prayers. So now, my friends, I'm just pulling into the block, I think, where my friends, this wonderful family lives. I'll be joining them for dinner. This is my main meal of the day. I, uh, although I, I advocated having a, a midday meal as your main meal earlier today, all I've had is uh, I had a, a little, um, a little uh, coffee and a little pastry when I was meeting with this woman, Norma, earlier after Holy Communion. That's all I've had today. That was my collation. So this will be my main meal. And I think this family is going to make us some lovely baked potatoes for dinner. Um, very much in the spirit of St. John Vianney, who used to who used to live, he's the patron of parish priest, he used to live on nothing but boiled potatoes. <laughs> but I think ours will be a little bit more tasty. So my friends, it's good to be speaking with you again. I would love to hear some feedback from you. If you listen to this podcast, if you enjoyed it, please, please do let me know. Send me an audio message. Send me a comment, whatever you want to do. Let me know that you're listening, and I hope to continue the conversation with you each week going forward this year. Please keep praying for me. Know that I'm praying for you. I'll be praying the rosary later tonight on my drive back home, and I will pray for all of you who listen to this podcast. May Almighty God bless you. May He protect you from all evil. May He bring you to everlasting life. Amen.